She rocks, she sings the blues, she does jazz, and even the Grateful Dead, the lead for the Grateful Dead. This Kentucky-born, six-time Grammy-nominated, small-town girl spoke to me in Livingston Manor, New York, where she was singing for a friend's fundraiser. Her voice sang out over the Sullivan County Catskills, over those mountains that October night, and I understood why some call her Joan Osborne, the Queen of Music. Well, the holidays are coming, and it's got me so upset. See, I've got a burning question. And nobody's answered yet Good girls get toys for Christmas But Santa, what do bad girls get? Do you cross me off your list For flirting and for teasing Yes, I pouted and I cried But I had a real good reason Oh, I've got a burning question Nobody's answered yet Oh, come on Good girls get toys for Christmas But Santa, what do bad girls get? your calculator you're counting up my sins but Santa please consider how much worse I could have been oh it's got a burning question mm, tell me once you know I won't forget good girls get toys for Christmas but Santa what do bad girls get Singer, songwriter, Joan Osborne. Welcome to the trailer. Hi, how you doing? I'm good. Would you like a homemade brownie? Maybe afterwards I'll, I'll indulge. They do look good and nice and chewy. Lovely trailer you have here, I must say. I know people can't see it on the radio, but it's lots of wood and shiny, warm wood and, and bottles of orange soda everywhere, and it's really nice. Well, thank you. So, Joan, let's talk a bit about the intersection between the arts and your music and politics. I know you've been been outspoken about mm -hmm. things and you've certainly been somebody who's spoken about women's rights and had Planned Parenthood tables at your venues. You know, the political involvement is something that I was into before I, you know, had a successful musical career. And that was one of the great things about becoming more successful is suddenly I had this platform to to focus attention on things that I felt really needed to, to have attention focused on them. And 
it was kind of nice for me to be able to deflect a lot of the scrutiny that you get when you become sort of a successful public figure and say, well, you can ask me about me, that's fine, but what, why don't we talk about this other thing over here, which is really more important? So it was kind of a survival tactic and also a way to just use that opportunity in a way that I felt good about to, you know, let people know that, uh, you know, I was passionate about certain things and to bring that up and to have that be part of, of the discussion whenever we talk about, you know, me and my music. As far as you and your music, it, your voice is astounding, whether you're doing a, I don't even like to use the word cover because you do so much more. And you've even spoken about that with your work about doing a song that's already been a mm -hmm. successful song and exploring it. Whether you're doing a song that's been recorded before or an original song, your interpretations are so interesting and so what you bring to them is so deeply personal. And are you continuing to explore this uh, kind of blues meets pop meets rock? Mm. Because, you know, if I think of what you do with music, it's this merging of starting with blues. Mm -hmm. Am I... Oh, you're, yeah, well, you're exactly talking. right. Well, when I started singing in public, it was in blues clubs in New York City. Um, it, it was kind of an accident that I even, you know, started doing this at all. It was, I was in New York City studying filmmaking and uh, at college and, and just happened upon this place that had an open mic night and happened to be with somebody who dared me to go up and sing. And, uh, and so I did. And that was kind of my entree into this world of, blues clubs and blues bands and places that would have open mic nights once a week. And I kind of caught, you know, the bug from doing it once and kept coming back again and again. And uh, really just ended up kind of putting my schoolwork very much secondary and, you know, so spending there, all there my money on blues school. records and spending all my time really kind of studying this, this kind of music. And, and I don't mean studying in an academic way, but just listening to as many records as I could and finding out about different singers and finding out about different guitar players. And if there was somebody that I heard on a record, you know, I'd find out who else were the musicians playing with them, and I would go and seek out their records as well, and really just kind of delving into it as much as I could. And, and Joan, why did you begin with blues, with the blues when you started singing in these clubs in New York City? Well, there's something about that music that is incredibly emotionally expressive. I mean, that's really one of uh, its defining characteristics, I think, is, is this power of expression, whether you're expressing longing or sorrow or joy, it's this pure emotion. And that just really captured me. Uh, it captured my imagination as an artist. It captured me as a person emotionally. There's something about singing this music, and you know, I'm not the only person who'll tell you 
that it's it's really kind of a revelation and it allows you to explore things about yourself and to reach deep inside yourself to places that you don't normally access in your day-to-day conversations or your day-to-day you know living of your life so it was really kind of a light was turned on in some rooms inside me that I hadn't been in in a while from singing this music and and it really was uh, it was really a moving experience so I've always kind of gone back to that as a touchstone whether I study other kinds of music or whether I you know, want to sing a country song or a rock song or a pop song. There's something about that emotional immediacy that that I, I keep coming back to again and again. And has becoming a mother, a recent mother, mm-hmm. has impacted the kind of work you want to do? In a way, it's um, it's freed me up to be, I think, more direct with my work. I mean, the, it's, it's a huge job taking care of a, a young child, as anyone will tell you, who has one. And it's, you know, it's something that I love doing. But it takes up so much of my, you know, brain space and heart space and everything else space that there's just a little corner left over for thinking about music and work. In a way, it's kind of a blessing because when I do sit down to work, I have to get right to the point and I can't waste any time and I have to be very, very focused. And I think before I was one who was likely to sort of meander around and just, oh, let me think about this idea for six or eight months before I really do anything (laughs) about it. And you just don't have that luxury when, when you're raising a kid. So it's... Um, so it's kind of a blessing to to be shoved into this corner in a way. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I found that in many in many ways in in my work is it's kind of good to be thrown off balance and to be put into this place that's not comfortable for you because then you discover new things as you're trying to write yourself and as you're trying to get back to your your place of comfort. You discover things that you would not have done before. With how sweet it is. It was an album of songs that had been previously recorded by other people. And mm-hmm. it's a CD I listen to again and again and again. Gore, I'm not a person that likes redos or mm-hmm. take twos of songs, generally speaking. But I, I think you're an incredible artist. So I got that CD. Well, thank you. And I love it. But how did you decide to do that at the time that you did, which was it was released post September 11th, mm-hmm. instead of the pre like the previous CD? I think, with the exception of one Bob Dylan song, all original. Yeah. Well, it you know the whole events of September 11th were so overwhelming. I just didn't feel like I could sit down and write an album that was going to address all the things that I was feeling, and and I felt like it was going to take me a long time to really absorb just everything that had happened and, you know, happened to people that I know and happened to me and happened to, you know, the city that I love. I I still feel like that event is coming out in different ways in my writing and probably will for years. Um, But at that time, I just felt like this is such a huge event. I can't just sit down and and write a record about it that's going to speak to that. Yet I know all of these other songs which viewed in the light of these recent events mm-hmm. have this additional meaning and really I think touch people in a way that they're they're going to relate the meaning of these songs to experiences surrounding September 11th and you know and some people might have felt that that was a little bit of a stretch but for me it was it was kind of a way of seeing these songs anew and a way into the songs that are like you say very familiar to people and maybe you know, maybe not everybody wants to hear another version of a song that Aretha Franklin has done because she's done it, you know, as good as anybody can do it. Yet, if you come to it with an original idea, then there's a way to find something else in the song that hasn't been discovered yet. Yes, I, at least I, I hoped it was. I certainly did. 
And Joan, do you ever carry with you some of these titles that you've been given, like the queen of alternative <laughs> pop and rock and kind of, you know, rock and roll chick? And are these things that weigh on you? Do you discard them? You know, I, I kind of learned my lesson after the, the, the initial burst of success um, to just kind of not read any of that stuff. You know? <laughs> I mean, it's great when people say good things about you and you, you're sort of like, oh, this is wonderful. Everybody loves me. And then the minute somebody trashes you, it's just it's kind of devastating and you sort of learn that you know that's just one person's opinion just like the positive stuff is one person's opinion and ultimately it's got to be about my relationship to myself and my relationship to the work and it's kind of it's you know it's tempting to to sit around and read your good reviews but you know right. it's it's kind of a waste of time you just sort of have to let go of all that and and just not pay attention to it what was it like touring with the grateful dead and being the the lead singer post jerry mm -hmm. garcia and to have been asked to do that and to have gone on that 2003 tour i mean that just it, was <laughs> kind of when i heard you were doing that yeah. I, was, I just thought that's so interesting well it was and i was very surprised to get that call because you know i hadn't been a big deadhead um it came <laughs> about sort of through and i really didn't know any of the guys in the dead other than having you know met bob weir a couple of times um it came about through people that we both have as uh, booking agents and bus oh. business people so they're the ones who sort of came up with that idea and you know once i thought about it i thought you know this is really what a challenge this will be because this group has a fan base that is so devoted and has been for so many years and is so familiar with this music and loves this band so much, you know, is this something that I'm brave enough to step into and do? And, you know, will I be welcome in this role or will I be really scrutinized? And, you know, what's what's this going to be about? So it was kind of in that way, I saw it as a challenge. And once I started listening to the music, I sort of became a deadhead in the space of about two weeks because I, yeah, because I listened to this material <laughs> that they've funny. amassed over the years and they have some incredible songs. And I just was like, wow, you know, to be able to stand up in front of this audience that loves this band so much and sing this beautiful, beautiful music, I kind of can't turn it down. So it, it was, uh, that's what motivated me to do it. And the experience of doing it, you know, it was very, very tough because as you know, they will do a different four hour show from one night to the next. And I, I would do a song one night and not see it again on a set list for two or three weeks. So I'd have to relearn, I basically had to learn a new show every day for that night's performance. And it was kind of like, you know, Grateful Dead boot camp is what I call oh, it. Really? <laughs> um, wow, so it was an incredible challenge just, just technically to be able to learn all that material. You know, again, it was really gratifying to be able to, you know, get out in front of that audience, which is was just the warmest audience probably I've ever played for. I mean, I love my own fans and I've certainly have great experiences with them. But there was just something about this audience that I hadn't really experienced before. It's like you just knew that no matter what happened, they were going to accept it. And Jim, what is it about Sullivan County that you love why you've decided to make this community a home for yourself? Well, I grew up in Kentucky and, uh, you know, in a, in a small town. And there's something about that way of life that appeals to me. And when I first came up here, it just reminded me, at, you know, every time I would drive down a different turn, I would see a different vista that reminded me of back home, or I would mm -hmm. stop at a little store and walk in, and people would be talking to each other in the way that people talk to each other back home, and it, it really just struck a chord with me in that way. And I have to say, it's great to have these wide open spaces and this kind of privacy, and, you know, I'm a, I'm a very private person, and I like to be very low-key, and, uh, and it's possible to do that up here, whereas if I had a place in the Hamptons or something, I think that probably would not be so easy. A whole different mentality, mm -hmm. I think, in other areas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the beach is nice, but 
The beach is nice, but the mountains are better. Yeah. <laughs> At least for privacy. What's next for you? What are you working on? Well, I actually just finished a Christmas record, which was really fun to do. Um, and we did it really quickly in like three days, myself and a group of really great musicians. old school where we, we got the tunes together and we made up arrangements as we were going along and we exchanged ideas and it really, it happened really quickly like they would used to make a jazz record really? or something. Using traditional Christmas songs? Some of it's traditional songs, some of it is more modern stuff. There's a Robbie Robertson tune on there. Uh, some of it is more folk based. Uh, some of it is like uh, gospel and even jump blues era stuff. Oh. There's a a song called Christmas Time in New Orleans, which we actually recorded before Hurricane Katrina, but it was a Louis Armstrong tune that uh, that we re-recorded, and it's uh, so it's kind of a mixed bag of different things. really fun to do. And how did you decide to do a, a Christmas <laughs> album? Well, again, this was, you know, I people in the music business kind of get this bad rap, but this was something that a business person brought to me and said, hey, would you do this? We'd really like you to do it. And I was like, sure, this sounds like fun. So uh, it came through those channels. I also have finished another record of original material, uh, which I did with the same team of people that I did the Relish album with. That's with done. That. What was it like to study with Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan, the Kuali music. When I saw oh. that you had studied with him just before his death, I, I'm so curious about that. I adore his mm. devotional Sufi music. Yeah.
I was really privileged to be to be able to meet him and to be able to study with him, even though it was a very, very brief amount of time. We really only had a handful of lessons together. Uh, and then he went back to Pakistan, and we planned to meet up again in, in a few months. And then, of course, he fell ill and passed away. So, so it was. Uh, I guess when I think about that experience, I, I, you know, can't help but link that to just you know his loss and, and how, you know, how devastating that was. Not just for me, but for music fans and for everyone. Um, but it was a really. It was such a, a flattering thing that he, you know, accepted me as a student, and it's, it was kind of a rare thing that he would do that with a Western singer. I had to audition for him, and I sang him some, you know, like hillbilly country songs and you stuff. Did. Yeah, <laughs> I and figured. Where, where was the, in Pakistan? No, this was in a hotel room in New York City. You know, it was me and him and his whole like entourage, and we sat on the floor cross-legged, and he he brought out his. Uh, I can't remember now the thing that the sort of the accordion like instrument that they sit on the floor and play the harmonium and, yeah the harmonium thank you I have mommy brain drain a lot of stuff is gone by the wayside but yeah he sat happens. there he sat there with the harmonium and and uh, you know asked me to sing some things for him and I just sort of sang what came off the top of my head and then he sort of looked at, around at his people and looked at me again and said oh yes we can teach you so it was really just sort of a back and forth where he would play tunes to me on the harmonium and ask me to sing them uh, back to him. And we kind of got into this this rhythm where, you know, it, like a call and response thing almost of a gospel choir where he would play something or sing something to mm -hmm. me and I would sing it back to him. And then he would take it a step further and, and give me a different melody and then I would sing it back to him. And it was really, I mean, the, it's an oral tradition. It's passed down that way from generation to generation in Pakistan and India and that was that's how we started, really. And what was the reason you wanted to study with him? In addition to, of course, he's a, a, he was a master. Mm -hmm. But was it to do with vocalization, or to do with the spiritual tradition, or? Well, it was both of those things. I mean, it's it, technically it's a difficult music to sing, Kawali music, and also it has that same sort of emotional uh, freedom and emotional expressiveness that I found in blues singing that I find mm -hmm. in in gospel music. American gospel music is sort that. of the closest. Mm -hmm analogy that I can make to it. And I just, you know, I wanted to keep challenging myself and, and learn something more. And, and I mean, as you said, he he was a great master. And the first time I heard his music, I just was, was bowled over by it. You know, it was so moving and, and he was just so great. You know, if people want to find out more about him, he did make some, some great records with uh, Peter Gabriel's label towards the end of his life. But if you can find, like if you go to the, you know, Indian section of New York City or, or any town that you're in, and find sort of the more local stores. If you find earlier work of his and, and even DVDs and stuff, it's just it's just incredible. You know, they called him the lion, and that's really what he was like. You know? Yes, and it is music that's about transformation and about uh, otherness as well. These sorts of music really as a vehicle for reaching something. Exactly, reaching above yourself, reaching to God is what you know. Mm -hmm. That that's the specific purpose of that music is to bring the the players and the listeners closer to God and to, you know, have that communion with, with the spiritual, which, I mean, that's, you know, ultimately that's what music can do for us. I mean, you know, you can use music to sell Pepsi or you can use it to you know, reach outside of yourself and do that. And I, you know, I think it's, it's got the power to do all those things. So That's why it's endlessly fascinating to me. 
Well, Joan, thank you so much. This is Sabrina Toth, Trailer Talk, speaking with Joan Osborne. <laughs> what a delight. I so appreciate you coming in to the trailer, and I'm thrilled that I get to listen to you in yeah, just a bit. From the kitchen table, out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artell. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power, Joan Osborne, Little Wild One, Hallelujah in the City, and the title track, Little Wild One, Love is Alive from Righteous Love, What Do Bad Girls Get, Silent Night, and Christmas Must Be Tonight from Christmas Must Be Tonight, and Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan from The Best of Khan. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artel. For more information, please visit trailertalk.net. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artel. Safe travels. Looking to get rid of your old vehicle? Donate it to WJFF. The Car Talk Vehicle Donation Program takes care of it all. Tell them you want to donate your vehicle to WJFF. They will pick up your car, truck, or boat and convert it into a tax-deductible donation to your community radio station. The Car Talk Vehicle Donation Program. Drive on over to WJFFRadio.org. There's an ice storm warning in effect for Sullivan and Delaware counties until 1 a.m., and it goes until 7 a.m. for western Ulster County. And in Pennsylvania, there's a winter weather advisory in effect for Wayne and Pike counties until 1 a.m. Wintry mix tonight, chance of some snow and a possibility of some ice accumulation. A trace is predicted in the Jeffersonville area. That can be more in higher elevations. Overnight lows in the low 30s. This is WJFF. WJFF, Jeffersonville, W233AH, Monticello. TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Collapse and the Technosphere with Dmitry Orlov, Part 2 of 2. This is the second part of a one-hour conversation about the Technosphere between Hermetics podcaster James and Dmitry Orlov. They met online in August 2019 and began with the question... Why democratic institutions swiftly degenerate into kleptocracies.